next case. Case number 23-2109 from the District of Western Arkansas, Coleman Consulting versus Domter et al. <clears throat> Mr. Borden, Kircher. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, my name is Ty Bordenkircher, and I'm here today on behalf of the appellant, Coleman Consulting, LLC. This case originates from the breach of an, of an agreement between appellant, Coleman Consulting, LLC, and appellees, Domtar, AW, LLC, and Domtar Corporation. Under the agreement, the parties agreed and signed writing that Coleman would evaluate the Domtar Ashdown Mill and Coleman would be compensated for its travel, hourly time, and a fee based on a percentage of net profit and increased savings Domtar realized from Coleman's consulting recommendations. In the oral modification. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, later, after Coleman evaluated the mill and prepared consulting items, the agreement was orally modified, consistent with the written agreement, uh, that Coleman would receive 30% of the net profit and increased savings Domtar realized from Coleman's consulting items. Uh, in exchange, Coleman provided Domtar with the list of confidential and proprietary uh, consulting items uh, to produce the production efficiency of the Domtar Ashdown Mill. Uh, after uh, Domtar so Domtar paid uh, the travel expenses of Mr. Coleman, of Coleman Consulting, uh, but refused to pay uh, based on the net profit uh, sharing basis that the parties agreed to. Uh, Coleman Consulting brought claims for breach of contract and unjust enrichment. Uh, the court, uh, the district court, erroneously granted summary judgment uh, based on the statute of frauds rule for contracts not to be performed within one year. Can I ask you? Oh. Yeah. Do you, do you agree that the statute of frauds applies unless you can establish an exception? Um, no, Your Honor. I, I do not think it would uh, apply here because this contract could be performed within one year. But that's an exception. I, I believe the uh, partial performance would be an exception. The statute of, fraud, uh, uh, of frauds would even apply if it can be performed within one year is my understanding of the rule. Um, okay, well, the, I, the, the, the written agreement clearly could have been completed within one year. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, so it, it, it so, can be referred to as an exception. So, yeah. um, there's, a, there's a fair number of cases saying, but it's not crystal clear, uh, that an oral modification, at least a significant, that at least one that changes the terms, itself has to, is subject to statute of frauds application and exceptions. And you're... You're, you're, you're not contending otherwise, right? Uh, you I'm, I'm contending that, um, that it, it, because it was capable, uh, capable of being performed within year, one year, um, it would be an exception or, uh, in, uh, in other words, the statute of frauds would not apply. Can I ask you two, apply. two questions? I, I think there's two reasons to doubt that this can be performed within a year. One's in the written, the original written agreement, and one is in the oral modification. The written agreement, and we'll take that one first, is the confidentiality. There's a requirement that it be confidential for 10 years. You look at the contract as a whole, that's a requirement that cannot, by its terms, be performed within one year. What's your response to that? 
the confidentiality portion was only in the written agreement, so that wouldn't be subject to the statute of frauds, only the oral agreement. Well, I'm wondering about that. So um, it, it, it asks you whether the contract as a whole can be performed within a year. And we don't have a situation, I couldn't find one where it's part written and part oral, but the argument would be even if that's written, it still means the contract as a whole cannot be performed within one year, meaning that any oral modifications would be invalid. Your Honor, I believe that just the oral part of the agreement um, would be subject to the statute of frauds, if, if applicable, uh, because the, the purpose of the statute of frauds is you know when it's when something's not in writing as you know a safeguard against that. Here, the confidentiality portion of it actually was in writing, yeah. Um, so that it's, the statute of frauds. Wouldn't I think be I think that's debatable, but I then you go to the second one, which is. Um, you say, well, it could be performed within a year, um, but the problem is, let's say, let's hypothetically say you're right that the net profits, you know, and then everything could be terminated within a year. Certainly, the other party could then decide at year five or six, ooh, I want to implement these these things, and then you're going to come back at year five and six and say, well, we get thirty percent of whatever net profits you get out of that. And so, by its nature, it's a ten-year agreement; it's not a year. Well, Your Honor, it, it's, it's certainly possible for the agreement to last beyond a year. I d definitely do not doubt that. And it's contemplated, too. That's why it's set for 10 years. But the rule is if there's any possibility whatsoever, even the, no matter how slight, that it can be performed within one year, then the statute of frauds does not apply. And it, it is possible here that it can be performed within one year. So the statute of fraud. So the argument would be they could do it before the one year is over, and then never, never rec recommence and use those those uh, items again. Yes, Your Honor. But you wouldn't know that for ten years in a day, would you? So, so isn't it still in existence until we know for sure that it actually, in retrospect, yeah, we got all that done in eight months? Well, no, I don't think so, Your Honor, because there's. So, for instance, uh, one of the uh, improvement items that uh, Coleman recommended was a jumper line. Um, and they, the, the Domtar Mill installed the jumper line, but then a new uh, process came out, a new piece of equipment that actually rendered uh, the jumper line obsolete. Uh, there's testimony that said it would be impossible for them to use the jumper line. So, uh, and, I mean, and that's common in, in, in these mills that, well, that new equipment comes that out. That were the only recommendation within the agreement. But I, I can see maybe that's an example. But there's a number of – my sense is that there's some reason for the 10-year uh, period because there's some anticipation that there's some, at least some of the recommendations could be used over that course of time. So I'm just wondering how you ever figure out whether it was, um, whether it could have been, uh, what, concluded within a year because it's a 10-year agreement. Well, uh, I understand, Your Honor, uh, but really the 10 years is, if as, long, as long as Domtar is like continuously using his recommendations, then he would be compensated for their use. But, you know, if they replace the Kimmy washer, you know, next year, and then all the, all those recommendations go out the window as as far as them not being able to use it. You know, then, then the agreement is complete within one year. Are there any cases that uh, just to follow up on that that contemplate this situation where a contract has an express term of ten years or five years or seven years, and the court says, "Well, but it can be performed within a year," so 
too bad, so sad. Because um, it strikes me as being different when there's an express provision of a time length for the contract. And it gets to Judge Kelly's point, we just don't know. So I'm just wondering if there's a case on point where you have something like that. It doesn't have to be 10 years. It doesn't have to be the exact same facts. Just the, the, there's a term length that's different than um, what you say could be con- how it could be completed or performed. Um, I, I believe there's a case I cited, Your Honor, where they it believed that the contract would go on for two years. And I think it might have been an express condition, but they ended up showing that it was possible for it by hiring extra workers for it to be completed earlier. And that took took the contract out of the statute of frauds. Okay. Another one is Johnson v. Hillywell. Um, the court held that um, the fact that commissions might be paid to the plaintiff for a period of time longer than one year did not bring the contract within the statute of frauds. What was the first case? Um, I believe this is my brief, Your Honor, but I do not have it right in front of me. Um, but, you know, when in, in, in addition to this, and TWP Builders v. Krauss Construction, the court held that, you know, t- the testimony contradicting whether a contract could be performed within one year clear, clearly raised a question of fact as to the possibility of performing the contract within the year. So I think at the least, you know, there's a question of fact regarding whether the, the contract can be, can be performed within one year. Uh, next, Your Honors, the partial, partial performance exception to the statute of frauds uh, wouldn't be an exception that applies here. Um, the court um, seemed to believe, the district court seemed to believe that only in circumstances where full performance is rendered by one party and part performance is rendered by another um, is the, uh, does the partial performance exception to the statute of frauds apply? Um, there's, there's case law that's clear that. Well, I read Cobb. I didn't read all your cases, but Cobb, the, the, the opposing counsel is clearly right about Cobb. The full performance by the other party was clear from the facts. Right. And, all, and this, this issue was not discussed. What was discussed was the, the, the part for performance by the, the, I think, the plaintiff. So it doesn't it doesn't doesn't support your position. It's neutral. You are a full performance by one party and partial performance by the other party will definitely take a contract outside of the frauds. But where part performance is solely referable to the oral modification of the contract and partial performance is completed, that will take the contract out, okay, outside. Okay, what case says that? Cobb doesn't. Um, you okay. assert it as though it's clear, underst- you know, that we. We didn't go to law school if we didn't know that. I've, I've got it. Um, so, in OZAM Lumber Company v. Price, um, it's 219 Arkansas 709. Um, the court said the rules well established that part performance takes a contract out of the statute of, of frauds. I don't see that in your list of cases. Is it in your reply brief? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Who's the user? It's uh, OZ, OZAM Lumber Company v. Price, 219, Arkansas, 709. I'm looking at a table of authorities. I don't see anything that says who's in. Well, um, it starts I, with H. There's no case starting with H. In your table of authority. Oh, oh it's sort it should start with an O O O Z A N. 
that's not in your table of authorities. Well, uh, Moore v. Wallace is an Arkansas Supreme Court case that said in order for part performance to take an oral contract out of the statute of frauds, it must be solely referable to the oral agreement. How is this solely referable? Um, because presumably you would have performed under just the written agreement because you had to do that in order to get the $30,000 and the paid. I mean, so it's it's not as if the performance here is actually only solely referable to the oral agreement. Well, um, Mr. Coleman and submitted an affidavit to this effect that he would not have provided Dom Tarr uh, with his confidential proprietary improvement items had they not agreed to a a specific percentage figure that he be compensated. But I don't think that's how you look at it. I think you look at it from the point of view of the performance itself, which is you can at least, that may be true that subjectively he's doing that, but objectively they had a written contract and it required him to perform. And so, you know, I, I just don't think it's solely, remember, it's solely referable to the oral agreement. But that the, the contract does say that the precise percentage would be agreed upon later. So that was in the oral contract. That was in the written contract, and then in, in the oral contract, they agreed to the specific percentage, and he provided him, uh, Domtar, with the improvement items. So I think based on that, he would not have provided the improvement items had they not agreed to a specific percentage of compensation. Yeah, I'm just not sure that's right. Um, I mean, we'll have, to t we'll have to take a look at it, but but I understand your argument. Yes, sir. Um, Third, uh, detrimental reliance removes the contract from the statute of frauds. Um, you know, there's clear evidence that that Mr. Coleman was at the mill for two weeks, performing an evaluation of the mill, uh, provided Dom Tar with his confidential uh, improvement items. He, you know, went out of his way and provided these items to Dom Tar in reliance on him uh, being compensated with that thirty percent. Um, so we believe that detrimental reliance would take the contract out of the statute of frauds. Uh, John Borowitz, the Dom Tar uh, manager who hired Coleman, um, says in an email that, and that's uh, attached to our brief that uh, that Coleman was at the mill for three weeks and most of his work was complete. So you know, he clearly you know performed in reliance on the on the agreement being in effect. It strikes me your, the reliance you, that's in your in your brief is is was the what was performed under the written agreement. Yes, Your Honor. Um, you know, he, he relied so, on... Th so that would be the same thing. Well, so, you know, half your argument divorces the two agreements, and now you, now you embrace them. We, we, have, we have to take a consistent view of them. We, yes, Your Honor. I, th I think the purpose behind that, you know... If, if the oral contract is part of the written contract... Well, Your Honor, I, I think the purpose of the statute of frauds is to... The fact that he, did, that, the fact that he came and did a three-week evaluation and was paid for his time and effort, that's what the written agreement said was going to happen. Yes, Your Honor. Now, how, how is that detri detrimental reliance in the next 10, in the next 10 years? Well, he provided his confidential uh, improvement items to Dom Tarr in reliance on him being paid the 30%. And he wouldn't have provided that to Dom Tarr had... They not agreed okay, to the thirty percent. So confidentiality is, extends for ten years under the contract, as you argue it, and it is a critical part of the contract. And it wasn't couldn't it couldn't be performed. That is, the the 
misuse of the confidential information. That couldn't be known for 10 years. Your Honor, if, 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 if his recommendations became obsolete just by the mill getting new equipment, then you know, it would, that would be irrelevant and the contract would be you know, completed within one year. But quickly, uh, Your Honors, if I could just hit my last point. Um, in regard to unjust enrichment, uh, the court denied or the court granted summary judgment based on its, on its belief that there is no evidence of, uh, of Domtar's uh, wrongful gain. Um, but attached to uh, our response to the summary judgment motion uh, was an expert report uh, by Timothy Thompson that you know, specifically set out more than a reasonable approximation of and what... This is the one that your client testified was inaccurate and unreliable, right? He, Your Honor, he did not testify that it was inaccurate and, and unreliable. That is not my understanding of what he testified well, that's to. What the brief says, and it isn't contested in the reply brief. What your reply brief relies heavily on the Thompson report without addressing um, I, I, whether whether the district court needed to consider it. Your Honor, I believe I, I said in one of the first paragraphs of the reply that he he, he never said that it was that it was unreliable or, or inconsistent. Um, I well, think we, we rejected well, that. He said, did he say it was based on two phone calls? Uh, he had two interviews with Mr. Coleman um, by phone, remote. But but they're in two different states. Yes, Your Honor. Um, but uh, apart from the expert report, um, you know, Jamie Cook, who's the only third-party witness in this case, um, who was the production manager at the mill when Coleman was there, testified extensively that, um, that Domtar implemented all, not all, but most all the improvement items and actually saw a lot of increased production and increased savings uh, at the mill uh, based on those improvement items. And I can... I can go through that Wait, with improvements of your clients or of of other of, that, the, of the, all, the collective. No, specifically that that my client recommended that that Coleman Consulting recommended. He specifically I, testified that. I thought the evidence was that there was only one of of Coleman's that was specifically adopted. Well, according to Jamie Cook, the only third party witness in this case who was there, he said that. The mill implemented Coleman's improvement item number four concerning the consistency meter on the Kimmy washer and that it improved operations. Next, he testified that Domtar implemented improvement item number nine concerning setting a production rate for screens on the Kimmy washer. Um, he said that that, that impl implementation uh, proved helpful for the production efficiency of the Kimmy washer. He testified that they implemented Coleman's improvement item number 10 to inspect head box covers on the Kimmy washer. Um, but that, and then that change uh, helped the reliability of the Kimmy washer, which led to increased production efficiency and in turn increased, increased profit. And there's two other ones that he said that they implemented as well. Um, and uh, his, Jamie Cook's testimony is in the uh, addendum to my brief and, um, and set forth in the reply and, and the opening brief. But, Your Honors, there is clearly a question of fact here um, that, that should go to the jury. That's why um, we respectfully request that the court reverse and remand. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Franks. <clears throat> Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Adam Franks for the Domtar entities, Domtar AW. 
and Domtar Corporation. I will be a little more precise uh, in referring to a Domtar entity. Domtar AW is the owner and operator of the Ashdown Mill. Uh, its parent company is Domtar Corporation. Uh, there are issues related to that parent subsidiary relationship in the briefing. Um, and that was a separate dispositive motion that was filed by Domtar Corporation on, based on the lack of evidence of any veil piercing theory or any other. I don't think we need, yeah. I don't think that's a Thank priority you, item this morning. Some of the issues that have just been raised, I'll sort of work uh, in reverse chronological order here. Um, as far as the recommendations and that verbiage, like a lot of other language in this case, has sort of been shifting sand throughout the litigation. Uh, the record shows that these production items and processes. Uh, this is a motion to dismiss grant, right? I'm sorry? Was this summary judgment or, or 12B6? Summary judgment, Your okay. Honor. And so the record and the summary judgment record that the district court uh, thoroughly reviewed in the light most favorable to Coleman Consulting uh, in several instances, uh, the record will show that those uh, production items, in some instances, long predated, but all predated uh, Coleman Consulting's outage work at the Ashdown Mill for which he invoiced Domtar AW and was paid by Domtar AW in full. That is not disputed uh, in the record. Going back to the interplay between... Uh, now, now, wait a minute. Uh, I, get, I get from the blue brief that the only thing he was paid for was his time and effort time and effort in, for the three-week evaluation, and now you're saying that those payments include uh, reimbursement for recommendations, the, from the, things from the list of recommendations, the, the fandom list, that the plaintiff claims? Uh, I appreciate uh, the court's reference to the phantom list of that, as that no, was you say the it, you issue. Say it's not, it, we can't, you can't, nobody can cite a document to read. Well, uh, there may was, not be a phantom at all. The, the original recommendations uh, were phantom-like because the list... What was he paid for? That was my question. I should, I, Your was Honor... He pay, was he just paid for his, for his time and expenses in coming to, make, to do an evaluation, or was he, paid for, was he paid something for improvements he proposed? Your Honor, I think the distinction between an evaluation and improvements proposed, uh, there's not much daylight there. I don't, I have not seen anything in the record to uh, show uh, what Mr. Coleman was doing at the mill uh, when he was, pardon the pun, milling around, making observations. And it is our position that the confidential list of recommendations is a summary only of the work he had previously performed and for which he was paid in full. I think at most that one-page document he prepared uh, is a confidentiality agreement and nothing more. And this gets back to 
an issue that the court touched on. Uh, where would I, because that's, that I didn't get from the, either side taking that position in the brief. So what, where, where should I go in the summary judgment record to confirm that description, which is certainly plausible? Well, Your Honor, uh, that's sort of, uh, maybe that's the end destination of the argument because as the court referenced and asked questions about earlier is how do we get to this agreement to be enforceable? Uh, the court is correct and counsel has conceded statute of frauds applies to the written agreement and the statute of frauds also applies to the modification. There is no evidence to uh, establish an exception to the statute of frauds with either the written agreement, which has to stand on its own without reference to any verbal agreement, and that would include the modification. Well, that's that's a, that's one of the key issues on appeal. Uh, absolutely, Your Honor, and that the district court's opinion that was the uh, I guess I'll say. Uh, practical place to both start and end because this case started as a dispute over whether this document was enforceable. And the first time the 10 years entered this lit litigation was during Mr. Farnsworth Coleman Sr.'s deposition. It wasn't in written discovery. It hadn't been disclosed or referenced or even hinted at. Well, can I ask you, I want to ask you really quickly about the confidentiality agreement, because I, I think this touches on J uh, Judge Loken's question, which is it, it has a whereas clause. It's the fourth whereas, or the second whereas clause, four fourth paragraph, and it says, along with paren retainer fee based on a percentage of NPS, but does not give an amount. And so it's not as if, it's not as if opposing counsel comes out as, as whole cloth. Uh, you know, that there was some suggestion, to get back to what Judge Loken was saying, that he was that there was more pay coming for the recommendations he was giving. Otherwise, that provision makes no sense. It, uh, it, the only way, in my view, that it can make sense is if you look at the other, uh, this, what this case is about uh, are those 11 words in that provision. It's 11 words that we're talking about if you boil it down to be agreed and verified by customer. Arkansas substantive contract law, which applies here in this diversity case, uh, provides agreements to agree are not enforceable. And that's, that was what I was trying to tie together is this case started in one track. Is there an enforceable contract? 10 years uh, came out. That's when we really got into the statute of frauds and uh, Coleman Consulting has just been reacting to the uh, corner it has painted itself into because there are really two ways this can go. Either the statute of fraud applies and bars the claims, or if we get past that pre-formation issue, the writing requirement, the signature, et cetera, then we get back into the other track is this an enforceable contract under Arkansas law? And so they really could have gone, I mean, I, I view the two directions as they could have done this for less than a year. They could have said we get NPS for less than a year and there's the oral agreement. But because they wanted payment for 10 years, they ran themselves right into the statute of, statute of frauds, right? I mean, that's the two tracks that I think are potentially there. 
I would agree with the court's uh, summary of Coleman Consulting's argument, except for the uh, portion about payment. That was not the only performance uh, to be completed, and I understand the urge to uh, portray that performance because that will then bring in the line of cases that says if payment is the only thing right. to be done, then you don't have a statute of frauds performance issue potentially, but that's not what happened here. And that's why these issues are so commingled in part because of how this claim evolved and really totally changed throughout the course of the litigation. But the uh, performance, what what is net profit savings? I, I can't tell you, no one at Ashdown can tell you, uh, Mr. Coleman can tell me, Mr. Gordon Kirker can't tell us. That is the agreement to agree. That's unenforceable, even if you satisfy the writing requirements. What about the uh, so? What is what's the problem under the statute of frauds? Is it is it both the confidentiality has to be for ten years, which is part of the written agreement, but also the potential payment of whatever NPS is over the next ten years? Is it both? Is it one or the other? It. I would say it's even more than that, Your Honor. It. it these are all essential terms: confidentiality, uh, the compensation, the duration of the contract, but also, and this is not an issue of method of performance. I think that's the case that counsel was referring to, and there's a line of cases that say if you uh, alter the method of performance but not the essential terms, you might be able to skate on a statute of frauds issue. But in this case, all we're talking about are essential terms, and that's what net profit savings is supposed to be customer savings, production increases. None of those are defined. There's no evidence of what those mean. The testimony from uh, Mr. Coleman was uh, you would, and his expert whose opinions he did not agree with, you would have to benchmark. But before you can benchmark, you have to select the production metrics to benchmark. That was never done. That is among, or those are among the litany of essential terms that there was never, first, never any agreement on, but second, there's no evidence of performance. I would submit to this court that Coleman Consulting did not fully perform under the terms of the written agreement, which I believe counsel's conceded is missing some terms. To get where they want to go, they have to have the modification. Yeah, but Corey, he says part, there's a sufficient partial. That, uh, as an interesting argument, it was not raised at summary judgment. Uh, Judge Hickey addressed that uh, both in her memorandum opinion and the order denying reconsideration. Um, I think uh, because it wasn't developed at summary judgment, the, this court need not even address it. But perhaps substantively, that's just wrong. The case that uh, the Ozen case that he cited to, as with the other cases cited for this concept that partial performance by itself uh, will somehow uh, accept an agreement from the statute of frauds is just not the law in Arkansas. It has been, you know, that, that the statute of frauds has required as an exception full performance by the charging party, in this case Coleman Consulting, and partial performance by 
Dom Tare W, in this case, the party to be charged. Uh, I mean, that's been the rule in Arkansas for at least 100 years, and there is uh, no comfort or support for this idea that even partial performance by uh, one party is sufficient. That's exactly what uh, the statute of frauds was, you know, uh, created back in the 17th century or whenever it was to avoid, right, is these uh, false claims. And that's what the Arkansas Supreme Court has steadfastly held to. But And that's what this case is. It is one person saying there is this agreement that uh, has changed over time, and it's just not... It doesn't satisfy the statute of frauds. It's not enforceable under Arkansas contract law, even if the writing somehow was accepted from the statute of frauds, which I would submit it is not. And the modification is not because, as you just heard, the modification is subject to the statute of frauds if the agreement modified is subject to the statute of frauds. That is the law in Arkansas. Uh, very briefly, uh, clear and convincing evidence is what's required uh, for these issues. That is why the district court was correct in granting summary judgment on this very preliminary issue. There was no evidence in the summary judgment record to uh, establish an exception to the statute of frauds. Separately, there was not a uh, factual basis or there was not a, any evidence uh, to show an enforceable contract because again it's either subject to the statute of frauds and is barred or it's uh, too vague to enforce, it's an agreement to agree, it's indefinite, it does not have all the essential terms and cannot satisfy Arkansas law. The Domtar uh, entities would ask that the district court uh, be affirmed uh, on all issues, summary judgment, reconsideration. Uh, we would also ask uh, the district court to be affirmed on the alternative basis or bases raised in the briefing that are supported by the record before this court. And I will stand aside unless the court has further questions. Thank you. For rebuttal? Okay, give you a minute. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, at the outset, all arguments made at the appellant level were made at the trial court level, and that's ex uh, briefed extensively in the reply brief. I go through that in detail that every argument made here was made before. There was no you know, waiver or argument that was not made earlier. Uh, second, um, the there's evidence that shows that the contract that the contract was capable of being performed within one year. Uh, you know, if Dom Tar, e even if you were to include the confidentiality as you know a ten-year requirement, you know, if Dom Tar trashes the recommendations and gets new equipment, and you know pays and pays Coleman for for any benefit they had within the time that they used it, then that the agreement's performed performed within one year. There's no further obligations. I don't think I agree with that. I think that, I mean, if you trash the machine, but then they go publish it on the internet, are you telling me you wouldn't sue? 
Well, it's definitely possible, Your Honor, but the question that it could go beyond a year, but the question is if there's any possibility that it could be less than a year. And there are circumstances out there where the agreement could be completed in less than a year. So you're, uh, okay, all right. Your Honor, in regard to detrimental reliance. Thank you. The time's up. The case has been thoroughly briefed and argument has been helpful. We'll take it under consideration.